This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Our perceptions of early Australia are often limited to convicts and discovery. But K.M. Cromink's novel, A Treacherous Country, addresses the physical, social and psychological displacement early settlers must have experienced. So, Kate, welcome to 3CR. Thank you very much, David. It's lovely to be here. Now, our narrator, Gabriel Fox, is to all intents and purposes lost. How came I to this place? Why, if all around me was evidence of the unexpected natural laws, did my thoughts not remain inside the privacy of my mind, but instead spike up out of my head and my eyes into points of interrogation? Here is another question. Can the season truly be called winter if it is at the wrong time of the year and the leaves have not fallen? This is an extraordinary sense of disassociation and befuddlement. Was that your intention to try and capture that? Yes, absolutely. I wanted Gabriel to arrive in Van Diemen's land feeling lost from the outset. So I kept the um, the landscape quite vague for that reason. Um, and also he sort of observes things from an arm's length. And the reason for that is that his, his true motivations are pointing him backwards. Really, he needs to be back home facing what's going on back there. So he's sort of wandering through Van Diemen's land, slowly discovering that he needs to, to turn back. But you've also captured Gabriel's words and his thinking. I mean, you've mentioned the Ark of the Apple that he tosses away. It's the scientific age, but he, again, doesn't seem to be able to make that fit into the landscape that he's come across. And how challenging then also was it to capture that language and that mindset? It actually unfolded pretty organically for me, David. Um, I started writing this novel specifically for the Vogel. I had about eight months to do it, and I did it as an exercise to kind of keep my myself sane. I was so exhausted with my new baby, I was hallucinating. And I looked at an older manuscript I'd been writing, and it, it was too personal, and I just found it too difficult for my mindset. So I started on this one, and I just found Gabriel almost leading me along by the hand. It it unrolled so naturally. Um, although I did stop and do a bit of research um, quite often with language-specific words and phrases to check that they were of the time. But you've also posed challenges for the reader as well. Gabriel, when we first meet him, is carrying two whaling harpoons, but he's not a seaman. He's accompanied by someone he calls My Cannibal and rides a lacklustre horse called Tigris. I mean, we as the reader are almost feeling the same sense of discomfort he is. Yeah, well, I'm. thank you. I'm really glad that came across. I love a sense of the strange and I like a bit of mystery. And I feel like the story might not have been compelling if, if I over-explained it as I went. I wanted the readers to be able to understand more than Gabriel understood, but also to go along with him side by side. Before we actually find out what Gabriel is doing in Tasmania, he suffers a succession of misadventures. I mean, he's acquired these two harpoons, which we don't know how for a while. He's been sold a dud horse. He has diarrhoea. He's robbed. I mean, this poor bloke can't seem to win a trick. No, it's true, and he doesn't even get any breakfast. But he's also taken advantage of. Everybody along the path tries to make something from him or of him for their own benefit. And that's not the world he's coming from, really. 
he's a gentleman lost in a strange land. Yes, he comes from a very privileged land and I don't think he really understands that the force of colonisation that he is representing and taking part in is a brutally destructive one and I don't think he understands that things are different in this new place and so he has to engage with people differently. So he he receives warnings that he doesn't understand, he receives information that he can't take on board and so that does leave him very vulnerable to being taken advantage of. But he's also coming with the expectation that everybody else will be a gentleman, will have had the same background that he's had. That's right. He's used to operating in a, a certain kind of society where um, he puts it in the book at one point that the set of a pair of white shoulders, if they're turned slightly towards you or away from you, can sort of determine your fate. So he's used to that kind of nuance, you know, that kind of shared understanding of, of how things work, which just doesn't translate for him here. He's also expected to buy a whaling station. Yes. <laughs> represents a sort of opportunity for these people to get out of a situation. So they almost expect him to use his letter of credit to buy them out. Yes, that's right. The owners of the whaling station are in a pretty desperate situation. The whaling trade was in steep decline in 1842 just because the whales were close to being hunted out and also being clever creatures. I think they were also staying away. And so he meets his his friend, who he calls the cannibal, who sees in him an opportunity that they might help each other out. Everybody represents a, an opportunity in this new land. But yes. we should actually get to the question of what Gabriel is actually doing here in the first place. His task almost seems too monumental to be accomplished. What's he doing there? He's been sent by a lady, an elderly lady, whose great-granddaughter he wants to marry. And... He's been sent to find a woman called Marianne McGinn who was transported to Van Diemen's Land some decades before. And I think it's pretty clear that even though he has this very clear goal, he feels like if he finds Marianne McGinn and brings her back, then he'll be allowed to marry the young woman. But he feels very aimless despite having this incredibly concrete goal. And he doesn't really have much information about Marianne McGinn. He doesn't know where to start looking. And he doesn't sort of try. And I think that shows that it's really not his true motivation. Well, he seems to be fairly helpless. And the task would almost seem to be impossible because the woman he's been sent to find was sent out to Australia uh, 20, 30 years before. Yes, although she was sent to Van Diemen's Land, which was a small place then and is a small place now. And if you're Tasmanian, you know that these coincidences absolutely abound. You're one or two degrees of separation away from everyone else. So it, I think it probably would have been possible for him to find her. But the interesting thing is that while at this whaling station, there's a sort of convergence about this notion of marriage. I mean, Gabriel is there because if he finds this woman, then he can perhaps pursue uh, an engagement with a woman back home. But also then we discover about Gabriel's own mother, who's been locked up in the attic for defying her husband. But this is also paralleled with one Mrs. Heron, who's the wife of the whaling station owner, who's actually leaving her husband. So we're getting views of marriage, the old and traditional, with a more contemporary look at what's going on. 
Yes, and I, I think this is part of Gabriel's growth. He's a very young man and very immature, and he's being led towards a certain kind of worldliness and wisdom, or a greater understanding of it anyway. So he's got this very romantic notion. There's a girl at home he loves, he's proposed to her. She said no, but he thinks that's fine. You know, I understand. I have to go on this quest first, and then she'll say yes. But wiser people than him are showing him that there's more to it than that. And that it's a bigger question than he understands. But there's also a new set of rules in terms of relationships. I mean, Mrs. Heron has been through an extraordinary uh, amount of trial and tribulation and is basically leaving her husband, which was unheard of in many ways in that day. Yes, absolutely. Um, Although it should be noted she's not divorcing him. She's just um, sort of the idea is she's going home ahead of him to England, which I think was probably a bit more socially acceptable. But of course, he's stuck with this whaling station that he can't sell. So I think the understanding is that they'll probably never see each other again. And really, one would have to also question the quest that Gabriel has been sent on in the first place. Might there have been an ulterior motive? To it. Like getting rid of him. <laughs> Basically, yes. Was yes, he an possibly. Acceptable partner for this woman's charge who she was looking after. Yeah, I'd, I don't think he's an acceptable partner at all. I think, although Susanna doesn't have much space in the text, I think she shows herself to be a, a very um, sympathetic person who probably deserves a bit better than Gabriel. But it's, it's not up to Gabriel or Susanna, it's up to. Uh, their parents and those that are looking after them because Susanna is the ward. So there are other forces at play here. That's right. They certainly need their parents' consent and Gabriel coming from a titled family um, could well find himself subject to an arranged marriage as well. And I, I think it's sort of interesting, the elderly lady, Mrs Prendergast, comes to a decision very suddenly to send Gabriel on this mission. She doesn't really ask his permission. She sort of says, you know, this is what you're going to do, young man. And he does because he's Gabriel. She's inspired by Gabriel's mother, who has a bit of an outburst on Christmas Day. And all she does is say that she's unhappy and, and doesn't like her life, but she does it in front of guests, which is pretty scandalous. The point, a woman can be oh, locked sorry. up for that action. Well, this is engaging with the trope of the um, the mad woman in the attics, where a, a woman might be locked up if she was showing signs of being socially unacceptable in this way. And it was often seen as a kindness because the alternative might have been bedlam. But of course, it's not a kindness. Of course, it's very sinister. She doesn't need to be locked up, but she is so powerless that there's nothing she can do. And the only people who could help her would be her sons. And one of them, Gabriel, has run away. The other challenge then we have is what are you actually saying about the nature of the new world in Australia at this time? Yeah, that's an interesting question and I'm still mulling that one over myself. I think there's a lot in there about memory and about how subjective memory is, how important it is to actively inquire on things that we assume are true because we've been told they're true or or we've read them or so on. I also think There's a lot in there about perspective. The title of the book is A Treacherous Country, and I feel that the treacherous country is actually England and what Gabriel is representing, because that is the cause of all this devastation and and terror in the colonies. So I think it's it's sort of through Gabriel, this very innocent young tool of colonisation, trying to lead him through this journey to see 
that the problems lie with him and what he represents. And the expectations that were imposed upon him, which influence all his encounters, which then, of course, leads to the fact that he's taken advantage of. Yes, absolutely. Um, he, he feels quite powerless under the weight of these expectations. And it's kind of interesting because, of course, he's, he's not at all powerless. He's a young European peer with, with a lot of money behind him. But he loses everything. The letter of introduction, there's actually a wailing incident and the letter becomes sodden, the letter of credit, all of these sorts of things. So what he really then must rely on his own wits by the end of it, which in some ways was how Australia survived. That's quite right. And um, that's, I guess, what you're, you're saying about expectations is that only once he's shaken off those expectations, you know, he's lost his letter of credit, he, he can't act on that anymore, does he truly begin to see his own true path. Well, Kate, we're actually going to have to end the interview there. A fascinating insight into Australia and its early origins. But the novel is A Treacherous Country, the author K.M. Cromink, and it's an Alan and Unwin release. So thank you very much, Kate. Thank you, David. Thanks for talking to me. Thanks, David. Now you and Mitchell follows with another author. Today I'm talking with Felicity Harley, author of a new book titled Balance and Other BS. Felicity is a journalist who is a founding editor of the magazine Women's Health. She appears regularly on Channel 7 Sunrise program and is currently editor-at-large for a website she launched called With Her in Mind. Balance and Other BS is Felicity's debut book, and in it she calls out the crap in cult wellness. Then she offers her own down-to-earth ways to find clarity amid the chaos of an overloaded life, particularly for women. What is overwhelm and how does it affect women? Basically the thousands of things that go on through your mind at every one given time and particularly for me, it, it sucks me dry, it leaves you exhausted, it leaves you well overwhelmed and, and just, um, yeah, just kind of searching for that balance and those, those, those moments of clarity. I think particularly it affects women. Really this stems back, if you go right back to say the 60s when feminism was first introduced and and women wanted to get out of the homes and they were promised that they could we could have it all and we could have the career and um, the job and the money and the we could be equal with men but what we forgot is that there's still another load at home we're carrying another work life do I dare I say the second shift as it's often referred to so you know women I mean this is changing obviously and I deal with this in my book but women are overwhelmed because we're still trying to work it during the day and then we come home and we work at night with the housework running the household looking after the kids if you've got kids that kind of thing. In May 2019, you wrote a piece for your website with her in mind, which you say went bananas. What was this piece about and why did it become the springboard for your first book? I've been a journalist for 20 years and this is the one story that I got the most, dare I say, overwhelming amount of feedback from. We got loads of clicks and, and so many women and friends and, and strangers texting me and messaging me saying, this is exactly what I feel. I just don't feel I can ever be balanced in my life and I'm not sure why and how do I get there. And this prompted me, I was actually talking to my book publisher, Alan Unwin at the time about writing a book. And I just happened to flick them this article and I said, this, there's something here. There's this, there's this thing that women are feeling. Women are feeling overwhelmed, they're fed up, they're angry and they need a shift. 
What is the paradox of having it all but still wanting more? You know, we've been sold that we can have it all. We can have the job. We can have the career. We can have the home life. We can have the husband. We can have the kids. It set us up for a bit of a downfall because we were told that we can be superwoman, that we can do anything, that the world is equal. We were sold the idea that go and get your education, step up, work your hardest, and you can do it all. But the thing is, a lot of us have stepped up, but doors have closed in our face. And then we're like, what? Can I have it all? But then in the last five years, we were then told, but hang on, go and drink your green juice and meditate and then you can have it all and be more mindful and take your vitamins and and do this and you'll be more well and you'll be more balanced and and you know what we are absolutely overwhelmed by all this it's a real paradox because we know we can have it all well not all at the same time but we know we can have our all our version of what all is you know one of the things I do talk about that I've come to realize about my life that you can't have it all but you can have your all and what is important to you in your life What is the mental load and what are some examples of it in a single woman's life as well as a married woman's life? Basically, it is the um, thinking and planning and organisation and worry that women carry. Now, it's not just the organisational tasks, but it's remembering what has to be done, what needs to be done, who needs to be dropped off to ballet, who needs their shoes packed for footy. You know, even without kids, okay, so where does my cat need to be or when's the washing machine going to be dropped off? And so basically it's all the the planning, the thinking um, that makes sure the house and the family is is functioning. This is just not men and women specific. This is any um, partnership, whether it's same sex, it's the person that pulls the load. How can men step up to help ease the mental load of women without women feeling as though they are losing control in their own domain? Look, I have a great as I call him, feminist ally. He's he's really great around the house and he's always so open to learning and knowing where he can help out. I think one of the biggest things that we've kind of worked out in our household is not to just ask me, oh, what are we having for dinner? But to actually go and take the initiative, be proactive and, and um, go and do dinner and not have to ask for it to fall on my shoulders. So I think proactivity is just such a great thing around the household. If you see a load of washing, fold it rather than just leaving it there for a week and just waiting for um, your wife or your partner to fold it. How did the wellness industry develop and what does it promise? The wellness interesting. actually, I really enjoyed researching about modern day wellness um, for the book. I've got a whole chapter in it. It it was first, I mean, how we know wellness today was first conceived in the 1950s. And it was really about when the distinction was made between good health, so that is not being sick, and aspiring to this vitality, this high level of functioning through health and wellbeing inside and out. So no surprises it developed in the US. And really in, I suppose, the, the 60s and the 70s, it was more radical, it was cult-like, and it was not cool at all. And for the for the next 30 years after that, it slowly started picking up. And then probably about 10 years ago, I would say it became a bona fide movement. We saw the spa and fitness industries grow, celebrities like Gwyneth Paltrow took up yoga. We saw organics coming into our supermarkets. And then suddenly all the experts came along on Instagram and, and um, Facebook and social media. So it came along because basically wellness was meant to fix everything. It was supposed to make us feel good, especially for women. It really is seen as a modern day panacea to our mental exhaustion. It takes you away from work stress, the pace of society, your mental load, the second shift. I'm speaking today with Felicity Harley about her debut book, Balance and Other BS. 
In your book, you describe some mixed experiences that you and others have had with the wellness industry. What are some positive and negative examples? Yeah, I've probably had some mixed experiences with the wellness industry. On one hand, I absolutely love it. I buy into it. I have tried everything and anything. I've been on a wellness holiday to Las Vegas where I did yoga in a mega-sized Ferris wheel overlooking all the casinos, which seemed a bit wrong. I had a really great time and, and did no gambling. You know, a lot of it is great. I think on the flip side, though, we've got to remember that many wellness products are actually marketed towards thin, young, toned and privileged white women. And for 99% of women out there, that is not us. We're not mannequin shaped. We're tired, stressed. We can't afford to buy organic kale every day. We're juggling mental loads. And this can end up making us feel pretty inadequate. A few experts, well, actually many experts have called out the wellness industry as actually being the diet industry in disguise, but lumped under the banner of self-care. Wellness has been commodified. There is big business behind the wellness industry. How has the idea of controlling the controllables helped you take steps towards clarity and reducing your stress? One person I interviewed actually was I went to um, Richmond Footy Club and interviewed their mindfulness expert. Her name's Emma Murray. She's actually a psychotherapist. Dusty Martin actually thanked her in his Brownlow speech a few years ago as being imperative to their their drought breaking win a couple of years ago when they won the premiership. So I went down. I mean, it was a bit all a bit weird me going down <laughs> down to. Um, Having obviously Tom played for Geelong and then now he runs the Sydney Swans, but I did go down into the Tigers headquarters, into their training room and interviewed Emma Murray. And she um, talks a lot about the idea of controlling your controllables. And um, Tom actually talks a lot about this and this helped him through his career. And so try and curb your anxiety, your worry about the future by controlling what you can in that moment. And I think this is really important step that you can take towards clarity and reducing your stress. Your book discusses Oprah Winfrey's declaration that the most powerful tool women have is knowing and speaking their truth. What are some examples of this? In my book I discuss Oprah Winfrey's declaration that the most powerful tool women have is knowing and speaking their truth. She talked about this in her 2018 Golden Globes speech which was more a rallying cry for the Me Too movement. But I think this, for me, this can also apply to women in everyday life, in um, overcoming your overwhelm. So know your truth. So what do you stand for? What priorities really matter to you? And I think when you're clear on what you stand for, you are more empowered to say no and you're more empowered not to get sucked into things you don't really want to do that perhaps add to your overwhelm. Now, that could be as simple as cooking a cake for a friend's birthday, which will take up an hour or two of your day, which you just don't have in your day of trying to do everything else so it can be it can help just being really clear and help you stand firm in what you believe in and what your all is rather than having it all what is what is your all in your view what is the difference between mindfulness and awareness I talk about mindfulness versus an awareness. I mean, really, they're, they're the same thing. It's about paying attention to what's happening right now in your surroundings, what you're thinking, you're feeling, how your body's feeling to how you're responding. Are your shoulders hunched? Are your shoulders down? Are you relaxed? Have you got a good stance or you're hunched over? I just think sometimes mindfulness has been taken over and commodified a bit like wellness. So we probably, you can call it what you will, but I, I quite like awareness and that's that's what I choose. For me, it just seems a bit 
lighter, more achievable, maybe a bit more personal and, and less commodified, less like I have to be scrolling through my 300 apps looking for a mindfulness, you know, 30 minutes of mindfulness before I go to bed. So it's it's whatever works for you really. But for me, I quite like the whole thought of awareness and it's a bit, yeah, it's a bit easier to do. How can women create mental space in their busy lives and what are the benefits? So I think to deal with your overwhelm, your stress, to help find balance because it's really, I mean, balance doesn't exist. Balance only exists in that moment, in my opinion. But to help you deal with your stress and overwhelm and what's coming at you, your thoughts, is just finding space in your day. It doesn't have to be sitting down, meditating with a candle for 20 minutes. I mean, that is not going to happen for a lot of us, not at all. All it needs to be is a small slice of time. It can be five minutes where you sit in silence, in stillness, and you just be aware, no distractions, your phone away. It's really about just checking in on your well-being and processing your feelings. And anyone can do this. You don't have to. It's so easy. You just... If you're you're stressed up to your eyeballs with work, if you've got kids, if you're worried about that you've just lost your job, it's just sitting for five minutes and saying, okay, how am I feeling? What am I thinking? Where are my thoughts at? What am I catastrophizing? What stories am I telling myself? What am I already telling myself that's going to happen in six months when it hasn't even happened now? Remember, control your controllables. Research shows that there are enormous benefits of just finding moments of stillness, of mental space in your day. What role can humour play in helping women to cope and develop confidence in themselves? I love humour, I love fun, I love joy. I think we can have that more in our lives. And one of the big things I think women struggle with with the overwhelm is confidence, is confidence to say no. We constantly check ourselves and measure ourselves against not just our friends, but also a lot of strangers on whether it be social media or when we are out in our daily lives. And I think if you can have a good laugh, if you can have fun, and most importantly, if you can have fun with friends, well, for me, that is true balance right there. That is true life meaning. Thank you, Felicity Harley, for joining us today on Published or Not to tell us about your debut book, Balance and Other BS, published by Alan and Unman and now available in all good bookstores. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.